Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 4, Whakapapa and Oral Tradition. Hello again, hopefully you have listened to the episode before this one, which is a dramatic retelling of Kupe and Tefeki, where Kupe discovers Aotearoa. I say that as the reason I'm doing this topic now is due to something that happened behind the scenes in relation to that episode. So when I released that episode, I decided to pay for an ad on Facebook, because naturally I want the show to grow and get more listeners. I thought that episode was a good place to do it, as it was more exciting and interesting for a wider audience than the history facts we normally talk about that might initially put people off. Although I'm sure we all enjoy some juicy history facts, that's why you're here I hope. Anyway, I was really proud of how that episode came out, and when I pushed it further into the void of the internet, what came back wasn't entirely expected. To put it simply, I got a reasonable amount of shit for it. I knew this was coming at some point. I know of other history podcasters who have been fairly vocal about their issues with people giving negative feedback due to not telling history the way they want. This was a bit different though. A number of people disagreed with the fact that I called it a myth, implying that it wasn't real. I'd always heard of the story of Kupe and Tefeki as being called a myth. The website I got it off, which is run by the Ministry of Education, put the story in their Myths and Legends section. As it turns out, there are a number of people that don't believe it is a myth. They believe it really happened, or at least that Coupe was a real figure. Now I do apologise if I offended anyone by calling it a myth. That wasn't my intention. I just wanted to make something fun to try and bring the story to life. Coupe could have potentially been a real person, and there is such a thing as a colossal squid, so it's not impossible that he fought a large cephalopod. In saying that, this is a history podcast, and we need to be assessing evidence to determine what is historical fact. By that, I mean I personally think that the chances of Coupe fighting a giant squid is very slim to none. Giant and colossal squid are deep sea creatures, and it is pretty rare that they come to the surface. Even rarer that they might try and attack a vessel. I don't wish to begrudge anyone who does believe that these stories are fact, but for the purposes of this podcast, we need to be using evidence and analysis as much as possible. So that's what this episode is about. We're going to talk about the oral tradition of Māori and Whakapapa ancestry or genealogy and how they were used in Māori society and why they might actually be more accurate than you think. Pre-European colonisation Māori had no written records, same as their Polynesian ancestors. They had no paper, no letters and that meant everything was passed down through voice. Oral traditions throughout history are often considered useless and unreliable by cultures that do have a written record. Celtic Druids are probably one of the most famous examples, with the Romans thinking that their oral traditions held no weight and would fluctuate from generation to generation, or even person to person. Māori were no different. Many times, stories were looked on as unreliable by Europeans, all the way to even the 20th century, because they were memorised and passed down orally. However, we find that the reality, like a lot of things in life, is far more complex. You see... These may have been stories with impossible acts and larger-than-life characters, but that didn't make them not history. Stories, rhymes, repetition, poetry, and other similar methods were employed to help them be more easily memorised, but that shouldn't and doesn't diminish their usefulness or reliability. We also find that although different iwi might have slightly different variations of the same story or relay whakapapa slightly differently, the broad strokes were always the same, and European scholars found that when they took a story from one tribe and told it to another, the second tribe agreed on most of the larger points, even if they disagreed on the details. So why would they bother with all this? 
Māori, of course, revere ancestors, and people naturally want to be associated with the most prestigious people or groups, since mana was so intrinsic to their society. But it was more than that. Whakapapa kept track of chiefly descent, connection to the Great Fleet, important marriages, fortunes in war, and other such things which naturally dictated your relationship with your neighbours, but also told you who had a claim to what. Whakapapa was very often referred to on the marae, the central meeting house used for social gatherings, or in our case, legal disputes, because it would determine who had to claim to land, resources, or chieftainship. Repetition on the marae also ensured whakapapa and stories didn't change too much, making them even more reliable. It's essentially like Europe during the medieval period. People wanted to show they were related to a king or a lord, so they could claim they rightfully owned a piece of land, or like many later rulers, trying to show they were descended from major figures like Charlemagne or Odin to increase their status. Just like medieval documents, however, Māori oral tradition wasn't perfect. For example, Māori whakapapa and stories were often interested in people of note, like heroes, chiefs, and other nobles, rather than disgraced individuals, defeated groups, or just the general common folk. Again, because people wanted to be associated with the best ancestors or lineages to try and increase their mana, which results in not a lot of information being passed down to us about those outside that scope. Also similar to European monarchies was people trying to do some leaps of logic or manipulate whakapapa. This was to try and make it look like they were related to certain high-status individuals, particularly chiefs, in an effort to lay claim to a chieftainship or strip of land from a rival. It's an interesting thing that these traditions fall into exactly the same caveats as written records found elsewhere in the world, despite the idea that just because they weren't written down, they would be like playing a big game of telephone. Sure, things got slightly altered and distorted, that's unavoidable like with any history, but since Whakapapa was used to handle disputes, it was vitally important that it be accurate, or at least broadly agreed upon by groups in an area as that was essentially their evidence in legal proceedings. In this way, Whakapapa was also sacred. Whakapapa Tupuna, arranging ancestors, was mostly restricted to those who were educated in genealogy. This made it difficult for European scholars to try and build ancestral trees as these people were reluctant to share their knowledge unless disputes arose, and even then they were usually only interested in their own lineages. Europeans in general had a hard time grasping the stories and tales in particular, as they were focused on the narrative. It was, and still is since I fell into this trap, hard for people unfamiliar with what these stories mean to see past Coupe fighting a giant octopus. For Māori, it was more about the names of people, places, geography, the genealogy. That is what was important for both spiritual and practical reasons. Because of this, you could more or less have people in different areas tell you the same stories with the same names. To put this into a real world example, let's take a slight step backwards from Māori landing in New Zealand to talk about the Great Fleet. I will do a dramatic retelling of the fleet next time, but to get you up to speed, the Great Fleet is about seven different waka that left Hawaii, the Māori ancestral homeland, to migrate to Aotearoa. Most Māori today trace their whakapapa back to one of these great waka, although there are other slightly more minor waka that others trace their lineage to, but to keep it simple, here are the big seven. Tainui, Te Rawa, Matātua, Kurahopo, Tokomaru, Takatimu, and Aotea. Hopefully I pronounced those mostly correct, 
and I do apologize if I messed it up a bit. I did try my best, but please let me know and I can correct it in the future. Some of these waka are said to have left and arrived in Aotearoa at a similar time, with others following close behind, although which ones arrived first differs depending on who you ask. Tainui is sometimes described as being the first to arrive in some stories, while in others, Tarawa is first, with Tainui being built immediately after the first part of the fleet set sail. We don't see any stories of the Great Fleet, or really anything else being written down, until the 1830s, by people like Edward Shortland, a British doctor and linguist who was going around different villages recording their stories, and is where we get a lot of information about Māori oral tradition as well as the Great Fleet. During a land claim hearing in Makatū Bay of Plenty, Shortland had an elderly priest start at the earliest history of the Trawa Waka and step by step bring it to the present day. He then took this to other tribes in Tauranga and in the Waikato who were quick to point out any misrepresentations the priest had made but accepted it was generally correct. Again, we see this a lot with other whakapapa when we cross-reference them from one iwi to another. Trawa and Tainui actually have a bit of interesting history as in most accounts they have some sort of dispute. In one account, the two crews argue over a beached whale. In another, Tarawa feel uncomfortable sailing without a priest, so they invite a Tainui priest on board to bless the waka, but sail off before he can get back to Tainui. There is also another account of the Tainui crew burning the Tarawa waka once in Aotearoa, which is then responded to by killing the Tainui chief. We don't see this level of connection between other canoes, but it does show that the animosity and hardship which they tried to leave behind in Hawaii followed them. Although the waka thus far mentioned are somewhat historical, there are others that are thought to be mostly mythical, as they brought the people with them who would become the mountains and features of the New Zealand landscape. The stories about those waka reinforce the idea of whakapapa and its spiritual importance, since their ancestors weren't just the land in the sense that they were buried in it, they literally were the lakes, rivers, and mountains. Takatimu also takes on a slight mythical status, as it is the only waka to make it to the South Island, and was potentially shipwrecked in Southland, becoming the Takatimu mountain range. Either way, scholars think that there likely wasn't a single great fleet, with each waka being a double canoe carrying approximately 150 people, as some have suggested. It's probably more likely that multiple, smaller fleets became single big waka over time, in an effort to more easily remember and pass on that knowledge and tradition to the future. There is also some mention of when the fleet arrives, they encounter people who came before them. As mentioned in a previous episode, the chance isn't high that there was a population before the large-scale migration by people that would become mouldy. It certainly is possible, but thus far no archaeological evidence supports the idea and in fact, when assessing the names of these groups, it has been found that they are actually descended from members of the Great Fleet. For example, the tribe Ngāti Hotu were found by Ngāti Tūwharitoa in Taupo, and were thought to be there from before the migration. It turns out, though, they were actually descended from the brother of the captain of the Tainui. Fun fact, Ngāti Tūwharitoa traced their whakapapa back to that priest that got shafted on the Tarawa, so I guess he made it out of that ordeal in good shape. Anyway, it's important to note that communication in those days was much more limited than today, obviously. It was very possible that they didn't know if any group they encountered was from the fleet or before. Another theory that has been perpetuated, and many of you may have heard it, is that these inhabitants that were already in Aotearoa were the Moriori. 
I don't want to spend too much time on this, as a lot of it is pretty racist, such as using craniometry, the measuring of the skull, which as you can imagine was used to justify all sorts of things, including segregation in other countries. We will focus on the Moriori and where they came from and where they went in their own episode. Now, I feel like at this point I've left a number of people behind thinking, Hawaii? Maybe he meant Hawaii and that Kiwi accent is spitting out consonants to replace the vowels it swallows. No, I didn't misspeak, hypothetical listener, but once again, thank you for bringing to my attention the fact that the microphone exaggerates my accent. I meant Hawaii, which obviously isn't labelled on any map. This is because it sort of is the place and sort of isn't. By that, I mean there is a spiritual and physical Hawaii. The spiritual version lies towards the sunset, around the west to northwest, and is where Māori return upon death. The physical, as we talked about earlier, is the homeland of Māori, where they came from to reach New Zealand, which lies around the east to northeast. This difference in direction is due to Hawaii being associated with ancestry, with one aspect of ancestry being death lying in the west, and the other being your ancestral spirit carried inside of you from the homeland in the east. This feeling inside of oneself was thought to be the energy with which a priest could enter a trance, or through which children could be born. The Western comparative would be something like the Holy Spirit in Christianity, filling you up, making you do great deeds, or blessing you with healthy children. We do see Hawaii in other Polynesian traditions, but the interesting thing about that is it sort of moves. By that I mean Hawaii is relative to where you are. Like Hawaii to Māori could be Tahiti, as it has been hypothesised, but Hawaii to Tahiti could be the Cook Islands, and Hawaii to them could be Tonga, and so on. What this meant was that Hawaii to them was always to the west, the origin of migration and the land of the dead. For Māori though, the origin of migration was to the east, and as such there was a distinction made between the spiritual and historical Hawaii that isn't really seen in any other Polynesian cultures. Once Europeans arrived, they attempted to write all these stories down, but as we mentioned, had a bit of a rough time of it, and with some just downright dismissing them. Such as Joel Polak, a trader in the 1830s who wrote down that some iwi believed a giant bird had dropped an egg into the ocean and four people in an old waka emerged, who landed in New Zealand as the beginning of Māori. Polak was pretty harsh in saying that, quote, their accounts are so much clothed with absurd superstitions as to render such stories wholly useless to the antiquary, end quote. At one point, some people like Percy Smith, who was the founder of the Polynesian Society, tried to put all the whakapapa and stories into one single cohesive history. This was an attempt to make the slightly differing versions of Māori history easier to understand for Pākehā, foreigners and to also use in legal proceedings. So in 1913, one volume was written, followed by another in 1915 titled The Law of Wharewānanga, The Law of the House of Learning. As you've probably guessed, it was a bloody shit show. The first volume was on mythological themes, with the second on tribal tradition, and the book was touted as a master narrative of Māori history, and it came close to becoming, quote, the final victory of paper and print, over memory and voice, end quote. Naturally, the book came under fire from multiple sides. One Bishop Herbert Williams in 1937 argued that the main informant for the law, Te Mātarohanga, was influenced by Christian teachings and that the Te Reo Māori translations were often bad, among other things. 
He also observed that at least part of Tamata Rohanga's scribe's manuscript was chosen from alternate accounts by popular vote, which I can't even begin to get into why that is just a terrible thing to do. In 1925, another scholar, Tarangi Hiroa, the Vikings of the Sunrise guy, generally accepted the sequence of events in the lore, but worried about the credentials of many stories, more or less saying that it was bollocks, because they had thrown together so many stories and details into one Frankenstein story. Oh, but wait, there's more. Further analysis in the 1970s led further credence to the idea that the law was just a terrible piece of history, exposing injections of European knowledge, false attribution of sources, and shifting of material to reinforce the narrative, very little of which corresponded with the manuscripts claimed as its sources. Even as recent as 1994, David Simmons observed that, quote, what words were to Matarohangas have been lost in the retelling and rewriting, end quote. After all that, though, I think Kendrick Smithyman said it best in 1979 in reference to the histographical methods of Percy Smith and his colleagues. Quote, One thing is sure about all this, it is not history. End quote. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaltaroa at gmail.com or Twitter at History Aotearoa, or Facebook at History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. We're also now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, so if you could give us a rating, that'd be sweet as. Hari tu atu, hockey tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>